Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I sit down with Seth Kugel from the New York Times, discussing AI and what it might be doing to responsible travel journalism and reporting. Somewhat scary. Then, an update from maritime historian Peter Canego on the cruise industry. And while there are many new ships coming online, he talks about the cruise he just took on a 91-year-old ship. And then, our philosophical checkup with celebrated author Pico Iyer, who tackles the question, why do we travel? First up, from the New York Times, Seth Kugel. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. He's the great columnist for the New York Times, Seth Kugel. And I've got a couple of questions I desperately need to ask him today. So, Seth, where are you? Uh, I am near the mouth of the Amazon in the city known as Berlin. 
and I'm awaiting some fried shrimp as we're speaking. <laughs> okay, now you've made me feel jealous, but now let me explain to my listeners why I'm calling you right now. And that's because you just okay. had a very impressive and at the same time disturbing story in the New York Times. And of course, the headline says it all. New Frontier in Travel Scams, Guidebooks Generated by AI. And here we are in the world of AI. Here we are in the world of uh, ChatGBT. And while you're ordering your shrimp, I got to ask you, how bad is this? Well, I mean, I think this is an example of kind of the worst that AI can produce. I think probably a lot of great things that AI can do. It's just someone wanting to profit, uh, producing guidebooks on the most popular destinations that Americans love to go to, Paris, Rome, Greece, uh, and telling ChatGPT, uh, give me a guidebook. Make 100 pages, make this first chapter on this, and the second chapter on hotels, and the third chapter on attractions. Doing a very minimal amount of editing, maybe no editing, and putting it out on Amazon, on a Kindle Direct. So you can just sort of send in, I don't, I don't know the whole process, but you can send in a PDF and they'll sell it as a Kindle and they'll even print it out when people order it. And so uh, we realized this was happening. We ordered a couple print editions and we downloaded a whole bunch of uh, ebooks and we analyzed them for uh, whether they were AI and they all were definitely AI uh, and they're being sold. But the thing is, how could they be sold? Why would anyone buy it? Well, they have a professional looking cover. Uh, more or less professional. If you're just going through quickly, you might not notice maybe a grammatical error in the cover or something like that. And they are loaded down with fake reviews. So if you didn't have fake reviews, no one would ever buy them. You know, the big names, Fodor's, Fromer's, Lonely Planet would all come to the top with their good reviews. But the floods, fake reviews, things, fake reviews, so they rise up in our first or second or third or eighth in the search results, people do buy them. People who aren't really paying much attention. Well, let, buy them. Yeah, let me ask you this, because in, in the story that you wrote, uh, you know, you, you went out and found a book called Paris Travel Guide 2023, and, you know, sounds harmless enough. It even has an author named Stuart Hartley. Does Stuart Hartley exist? <laughs> no. Stuart Hartley does not exist. Who went great lengths to find these people whose names are on the book. They're generally kind of generic names. Sometimes they actually have invented a story about them. Uh, so there's a bio. We had one whose bio is almost exactly like Rick Steve's bio. Uh, but uh, and then we find the same picture. Either the picture was generated by AI, the author photo, or it was a picture that was used like around the internet to illustrate people in like a stock photo so now those people do not exist Uh, we weren't able to find out like where these things are made are they being made in the United States are they being made in India I mean who knows Uh, because uh, Amazon would not give us any information on who was publishing them but Amazon it should be said did take a lot of these down after the article came out I don't know if it continues to be an issue I think it almost certainly does Um, but uh, it's just basically the, the advice is look inside the book on Amazon if you're going to buy something on Amazon or go to a bookstore because you'll never find these in the bookstore. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. One of our good friends is Rick Steves, who I know you know, who is uh, one of the king guidebook writers and tours all over the world. But there's a book out there supposedly written by Mike Steves. Any relation? Yeah, no relation. Although, like, you know, as I said, his bio is very, very similar down to the same hometown. Uh, They definitely don't look alike. And uh, Mike Steve has an earring, which is sort of half distorted and clearly not even really attached to his ear. And that's because the artificial intelligence made the photo. Um, yeah, it says uh, Mike Steve has been, you know, traveling for 20 years. It says he's written for major magazines. Except when you look in those magazines, there's nothing by him. Uh, then the reviews on his books might even be from those magazines. Those magazines have never written about these books. Uh, it's totally, totally fake, uh, and it's very low quality. And I just stress again, none of this would be possible without fake reviews. Let's go beyond the fake reviews to the actual selling platform, in this case, Amazon. After all this, what does Amazon say about this? Do they have any any re- reaction? What? Amazon does have a lot of things in place to sort through fake reviews, make fake reviews down. Uh, but those act pretty slowly and somewhat randomly. If Amazon, if you're publishing on Kindle uh, through Amazon's self-publishing platform, you know, it's not, they're not checking every single book before they put it out, obviously. So they're dependent on these sort of automated algorithmic systems to check and then on complaints from readers. Some of these books do get taken down. Some of these fake reviews do get taken down. Uh, but there's no um, sort of systematic way to prevent them from coming out before they ever go in. They have to sort of be caught retroactively. At least that was the case when they spoke to us. And, of course, they say, uh, you know, we're doing the best we can. We've taken down hundreds of millions of reviews, and I believe that is true. We actually saw reviews that came before Amazon even knew we were doing the story. We would see reviews off of the books that we were looking at. So there's obviously some system of getting these down. The problem is those fake reviews that got taken down would be replaced by other fake reviews uh, put up shortly thereafter. Uh, some of the books got taken down, I think, probably when readers complained. Uh, enough people say, uh, I want my money back. Obviously, that must trigger some, something going on. So Amazon is clearly conscious of this. They're clearly doing something. Uh, what we found is that what they're doing is not enough. Well, you know, I'm reminded of a book that I saw back in the late 70s, uh, which was not, of course, it was way before AI, but it was clearly a fake book that was being sold in bookstores on Cambodia, a travel guide to Cambodia in the middle of the Pol Pot regime. And I remember opening up the book and there was an entire chapter on tipping in Cambodia. I mean, I mean the point, I mean, really? I mean, it was no man's land. People were going to get killed. People were being killed left and right. We all know about the horrors of that regime in Cambodia. It's otherwise known as the killing fields. And here was this book being sold in reputable bookstores, a, a brand new guide to Cambodia, which was totally fake. What about the one you researched on Moscow? Yeah, Moscow, Ukraine. We found a couple of books on Ukraine. Um, and, you know, they were written as if they were written a couple years ago. And actually, as we know, ChatGPT is delayed in eating all this information and being able to spit it all out again. So, uh, yeah, 
Ukraine is uh, sort of an example of that. Um, I would just say that fake stuff has always existed. What AI is doing is making it virtually costless to produce this content. Uh, you used to, I think, have to hire someone somewhere to like research on the internet and then write a fake guidebook because those fake guidebooks have existed for a long time, as you just said. Now you could do it yourself, and I think it probably takes a few hours. But you know what, Seth? You said it doesn't cost anything, but it does cost if the information is wrong, misleading, or downright inaccurate, and that's what we're seeing. Right. And I guess. My big overall question to you is, now that we've uncovered this, which is pretty scary, um, then what, for someone listening to this show who wants to go and buy a guidebook legitimately to get information that's up to date and that can be helpful to them, what's the one thing they should do if they're going to do it online? You should act, well, first of all, you should pick a, a brand that you know and trust if there is a brand that you know and trust. If you're new to guidebooks, then you need to read, actually read the reviews. Don't look that it has 5.0 average stars. Go into the reviews and read them and see if those sound like real people who really read a book. The other thing you do is you read inside the book. Click on that inside the book on Amazon, read a few pages. You'll know immediately whether it's real or fake. And then, of course, if it's got an author listed outside of Amazon, go Google the author and cross-reference it to see if the person even exists. Absolutely. And you can't find much of anything on the person. Uh, obviously, they're a fake. Uh, and, uh, but really, if you depend on the brands we all know, uh, you'll be fine. Don't get tempted by cheaper prices. That's not to say there aren't great guidebooks by lesser-known people. Right. Uh, so I don't want to encourage you just to use the big grant, but uh, just be sure. I, I'd say reading the re actually reading the reviews is the way to do it. If this, this person who's reviewing the book sounds like the kind of traveler you are, they seem like they've really read it. Oh, and by the way, make sure the review didn't come out two days after the book came out. Because <laughs> uh, as, uh, as was pointed out to me by Pauline Fromer, who, who runs the Fromers, you know, to review a guidebook, you need to go on the trip first, then come home and see and say how well it did. My thanks to Seth. More people are cruising than ever before, and there are now more ships coming online than ever before. Maritime historian Peter Canego has all the details and what you need to know, but even more important, he's got the perspective. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital.
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Peter Canego. Welcome back, Peter. Hey, Peter. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. So here we are on the Explorer One, brand new ship from MSC. They're trying to redefine, I suppose, luxury cruising, uh, not just in terms of the ship itself, but where it's going and then how long it stays in each destination. Um, and they're looking at luxury from, you know, not just butlers, but from shopping experiences on board, on onshore experiences that go beyond just being shoved into a tour bus. Um, what's your take on not only just this ship, but how things may be changing in the cruise industry? Well, I think now that the industry's back and, you know, getting itself sorted out, people are figuring out what, what tiers of cruising they're most interested in. And I think the long-term cruiser that's been out there doing the usual Caribbean, Mediterranean, Alaska is looking for something different, a better experience, not, not necessarily being on a ship with 5,000 people, uh, getting into more intimate dining situations, having more choices, uh, healthier food. Uh, and as far as the ports are concerned, visiting places that aren't as familiar and maybe spending more time than just the regular four to five hour port visit, doing overnights, getting more into the cultural aspects of where they're going. The travel itself to the ships is getting more unbearable, even when you're, you know, in a, <laughs> in a good situation as far as flying is concerned. You're absolutely right. So I think people... Yeah, they, people want to make the most of it once they finally get there and and have a wonderful experience. Maybe that maybe really, that should be maybe that should be the branding of cruise lines. You'll have a great time once you finally get here. <laughs> exactly, getting there is not half the fun anymore. Uh, you know, as a you know, take off on the old Cunard adage uh, because it's terrible. You know. The airports are just unbearable, and the even when you're flying in, you know, in a better category than just regular coach, it's just it's a lot to endure. It is, and yet we keep going, don't we? In fact, we do. In, in the last <laughs> what last couple of months, you've done six cruises. Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, I've been making up for lost time because I had to take off the early part of the year. My mom wasn't well, and I was taking care of her. So when when she passed, I was. You know, I had a bunch of stuff that was lined up and I was raring to go. But now, you know, being back home after all of the flights, I'm really enjoying the, the a little bit of downtime again to sort of regenerate. I had a trip planned for next week, actually, on the Elba going from Prague to Berlin. But the river levels are low and the cruise line just canceled. And I'm I'm actually kind of relieved in a way. Although I'm surprised that the river levels would be low uh, at this time of the year. Usually it's in the summer that they can be low. Right. Well, yeah, but what's predictable anymore, Peter? That's the thing. You know, the climate change situation is, is, is breaking all the rules. So, they're, you know, I think in general you can make plans, but anything can happen now. I mean, we had a, <laughs> we had a tropical storm hit Los Angeles, you know. I mean, who knew, right? Yep, and, so, we, and luckily we survived. But moving right along, on yeah. those six trips that you took, what were the, what were yeah. your impressions of those ships, and what what are they doing differently these days? Well, it, it was a wide variety. Uh, the The first of the trips was on the Vista, the new uh, Oceana ship, and she's stunning. Um, she's not radically different from from the uh, Marina uh, and Riviera, uh, but she is. 
she's a little bigger with a slightly lower passenger capacity and gorgeous decor, great food. I mean, Oceana, of course, is, is top notch, uh, you know, not luxury, luxury, but, you know, everything I like in a cruise, a moderate sized ship, uh, intense on port, um, you know, shore excursion experiences and the best food afloat. Uh, so that was fantastic. And then I jumped from her onto the World Traveler, uh, which was the second ship in the Atlas Ocean Voyages uh, fleet, you know, 9,000 tons built for expeditions. And again, incredible food and service, beautiful decor. I uh, can't recommend them enough. I don't think they're getting quite as much attention as they deserve on the market. The, the, the food and service was top notch. Uh, and I came home, and then I jumped on the Diana, a 1931-built ship that sails the Yota Canal in Sweden. And I did a six-nighter on her from Stockholm to uh, Jotaburg. Well, hold on a second. Um, hold on a second. Yep. A 91-year-old yep. ship? 91, and she's the newest ship in the fleet. Uh, so if you're an old ship fanatic, she's... She's phenomenal. The Juno, which also sails for that company, is the oldest overnight passenger ship in the world, built in 1874. But, you know, you got to be have a bit of a sense of adventure. Uh, the cabins do not have private facilities. They're tiny. They're like, uh, you know, train compartments. But the experience is phenomenal. And you're seeing, you know, the heart of Sweden, which is not something I ever imagined I would be doing anytime soon. And it's spectacular. Um, so if you're adventurous and you don't need to be pampered in great luxury, I can't recommend, you know, Yota Canal enough. You talked about the Diana, which is a 91-year-old ship. You and I, the last time we were at sea together, we were on board another old ship, the Astoria, which some people will now know better as the historic... Stockholm. And then, of yep. course, COVID came. It stopped sailing. The other ships in its fleet were either sold or basically, you know, scrapped. But I've yep. done some checking, Peter. The Astoria is still there. She is there, Peter. She's still sitting in um, Rotterdam. There were rumors a few months ago that she was sold for scrap. And the owner who purchased her, I don't think he really knows what to do with her. But he's been trying very hard to not sell her for scrap. But unfortunately, there has been virtually, from what I understand, no maintenance. So I don't know what you know the outcome is going to be. It doesn't sound good, but then that ship has gone through so many, you know, she's not going to survive this, she's not going to survive that, and she still manages to continue, you know, being there. So we'll see what happens, but as of now, she still exists, and she's sitting in Rotterdam. I mean, this is a ship that's had about nine different owners, 11 different names. At one point, it was sailing for the East Germans, yep. the Italians, uh, and of course, uh, the original Swedish line uh, as the Stockholm and back in 1956, it was the Stockholm that rammed into the Italian liner and the and the pride of the Italian fleet, the legendary Andrea Doria, and it sank it. And yep. uh, Stockholm was still around, otherwise known as the Astoria. And we did a wonderful piece on the history of that ship that you were in that piece as well uh, for, yep. for PBS on The Travel Detective. And uh, we should post it again because, I mean, for those of us who have any sense of history, that ship is floating history. Uh, but now let me shift gears and come back to where we are right now in the Explorer, which is sort of making history because it's not a ship that's going to carry thousands of passengers, and yet it's it's all luxury. 
they are fine-tuning their ports of call. They're not just going to Nassau. They're going to Greenland. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're picking places, uh, as you said earlier, Peter, that passengers either want to go to or have dreamed of going to but have never done it. Yeah, yeah. And how are you feeling, Peter, about the about the level of service, the ship itself, the, the the food? Is it is it meeting your expectations, or are there growing pains? Or well, there's always going to be growing there always going to be growing pains. But I'll tell you this: you know, you mentioned food. I know you're a big foodie. I went to the galley. This is one huge high tech galley. They have every bell and whistle. They they've got chefs in from all over the world, uh, and they have realized what you just said earlier. You've got to do a great job on the food, and they are. Yeah. You know, they, uh, and, they're, and they're being very creative about it, too. Uh, you know, people take food for granted on cruise ships. You know, you're in the middle of the Antarctic and they're serving strawberries. How did that happen? You know, uh, <laughs> you know you're, I mean, it's, it's not as if they, they can stop and go to the store in the middle of the ocean. So they, the, the amount of planning that goes into it, uh, the amount of advanced planning that goes into menu planning, and then, you know, purchasing to make sure that at every port they're met with exactly what they need, I mean, they've got it down to a science, and it's not easy to do. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. Yeah, I, I, I I'm looking forward to their growth, and and I think the the more lines we have like this offering an alternative to the mega ships, the better. And uh, hopefully, people will get to exploring the the, the you know the, the smaller ships like this that that don't necessarily have an amusement park's worth of distractions, but they offer what it's all about to me, which is being at sea and having a a nice level of food and service. By the way, for many of my listeners who are living in the San Diego area, Peter, who is the ultimate uh, artifact collector, I don't know how you've not run out of room yet. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I think you still have the bar from the love boat in your garage, Um, but, or something similar to that, but at the San Diego Maritime Museum, they're now having an exhibit featuring many of Peter's items, a, a wonderful exhibit called Steam and Splendor, which is, uh, how long is that going to last? It's going to be there through uh, June at least of 2024, but there's an option to extend it if there's interest. And there, we're also talking about what we might do after this particular exhibit, because I've got so much stuff. Uh, but this is a beautiful uh, thing that they've done. They, they've They've taken a lot of ephemera from their archives and sort of constructed a timeline of how cruising came out of crossing, basically. And so they've got a cross-section of Atlantic and Pacific liners, and then they get into the more modern stuff where my things are on display. So there's doors from various ships and the statue from the love boat and a huge ceramic panel from the holiday carnival ship. Um, so it's really interesting if you love cruising and cruise ships and want to see a whole timeline, you know, everything from sailing ships up to now. Uh, it's a great exhibit. My thanks to Peter. Pico Ayer is not just a writer. I can always depend on him to find the proper and deeper meaning in the world, especially when it comes to travel. And he's been grappling with the where and why of travel in this post-pandemic world. But he may have figured out a few answers. Our good friend Pico Iyer, who I'm uh, I'm reaching, I believe, right now in Japan. Pico, welcome. Oh, it's such a delight to talk to you, Peter. So you know, it's it's an understatement to say we live in a world of disruption these days. I think it's part of the game. 
Uh, I think we wake up in the morning to find out not whether we've been disrupted, but in what way we've been disrupted. Um, so I guess from a travel perspective, um, you know, you reflect on this all the time in, in terms of your own personal journeys. But what do you think changed this year? I suppose people traveling like there's no tomorrow. Uh, they built up two or three years worth of, of dreams during um, lockdown, and they don't know if there's going to be another lockdown coming up or more wars across the planet. So everybody traveling with a vengeance. I've never seen the airports and, and the planes as crowded as they've been the last 18 months. Right. So it, it, as from a numbers game, I suppose, you know, it, it's unavoidable. You see it. You can't, you can't avoid it. But from a, from, a, uh, from a concept point of view, have they changed what they want to do when they travel? Well, I mean, I think over the last few years, people travel more and more in search of food because that's the one thing you can't get online. You and I could travel across uh, Antarctica right now on our phones and, and we could hear the, the festivals of Cuba without leaving the room. But tasting sushi or Japanese pancakes, you have to come to that little store on the back streets of Hiroshima. So I feel that the motivation that sends people around the world or across the country has changed a lot in the last last few years. And, and of things like Google Translate, I've noticed in Japan, suddenly Japan is flooded with visitors from the US and Europe who never used to come here. And it's partly because, as you know, it's not a very English-friendly country, but it doesn't matter because as long as you've got Google Translate, you can read every menu in a strange script. Well, as long as, as, long as you have food, it's the common denominator, I guess. But I mean, I go back and I know this is so stereotypical, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch it anyway. You know, not long ago, uh, someone might suggest that, that a definition of most American travelers are people who will go overseas, if they do go overseas at all, in search of a, of a McDonald's cheeseburger to, to rise to their comfort level. Yeah, and so my sense is that has changed because pad thai and chicken vindaloo and sushi has come to every little small town in the United States. So I think now people will travel abroad in order to get what they've seen online or what they've tasted at home, but in a more um, authentic setting. I know that when I travel, I want to consume the whole culture. If I'm in Paris, I don't want to spend three hours in a restaurant. I want to spend three hours walking the streets, taking everything in. But, um, you know, I'm probably sort of an old fogey, and I know that younger people are much more driven by eating and, and shopping and, and experiences, too. I think you know, places like things, institutions like Airbnb have changed the way people think of travel, probably, in terms of interacting with, with the local populace and even living as if you were somebody from Japan or France or Turkey. You realize, of course, Pico, that by saying the words old fogey, that automatically makes you an old fogey. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'd like to pretend it's otherwise, but uh, I, I can feel that I travel in a different way from um, most of the people these days, which is, which is fine. You tra travel has to keep evolving just as everybody else does. Everything else does. And I must say, you know, people ask me how travel has changed in the 45 years I've been doing it. And I think that fundamental encounter between one individual and the unknown hasn't changed. For all the, the GPSs and the smartphones and the WhatsApps in the world, I think the heart of the travel experience is just the way it always has been. Um, the logistics sometimes harder now and the, the flight's more expensive. But uh, we'll never run out of things we don't understand. And I think that's the beauty of, of travel that 
will keep you and me and everybody else on the road forever, I hope. Right. And of course, I always like to say it's the big C word, the art of the conversation. That's the part of travel that if you lose that, if you let technology take precedence over that, you lose the entire experience. I love that. And, and the other C word might be connection, which is a variation on that. And I always want to make sure that I define connection, not in terms of plane connections or phone connections, but in terms of uh, human connections. And in that way, too, actually, I think the world has become much easier because wherever you go, even here in, in Japan, so many people speak such beautiful English that we native English speakers are spoiled now because we can engage in those conversations um, as soon as we get off the plane in, in France. You know, 20 years ago, if I went to France, I'd always feel inadequate by speaking my schoolboy French. Now when I go to France, I feel in, inadequate because every French person I meet speaks better English than, than I do. But it certainly made conversation much richer and, and easier, I think. Well, that brings up my next topic, which is, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, Americans would want to go just to France, to Spain, and to Italy because that's what they studied in school. And they felt they needed to go see that, you know, see the Mona Lisa. Um, but what we've seen in, in, the, uh, in the wake of the pandemic is that people have thrown out that original bucket list and they've replaced it with you know, wanting to go to uh, the Northwest Passage or the Kimberleys in Northwest Australia or you know, down to Borneo. Um, and I'm sure you're seeing that as well. Well, that's a wonderful development. <laughs> I speak as somebody who went to see the Mona Lisa about 18 months ago, and all I saw were selfie sticks and about 100 people standing between me and, and the painting. So there's a real advantage in trying to get off the beaten path. I think it was just actually just before um, the pandemic, I went to Antarctica, and I'm not very sensitive to nature, so I wasn't very excited before going there, and it was beyond anything um, I've ever seen or anything I've ever imagined, even in Mongolia or Patagonia or Tibet or other remote places. So I would love to go to the Northwest Passage. And I think the more people are going, as long as it's manageable numbers, um, the better, because we have to travel to be stretched. And if we're traveling really just to do the things where we think we're supposed to do, we're not leaving home much at all. You're right. I must say, uh, Antarctica, for me, the first time I went, it was a life-changing experience because Whatever I thought I was going to see, I wasn't quite prepared, correct? Yes, uh, yes, and it's just the, the scale, as you know, the thousand shades of white, even the penguins are busily going about their lives as you're walking amidst them. Yeah, nothing had prepared me for that, and I can't imagine there are many other places on any of the other continents that would uh, offer anything resembling that. And I'm, I'm very touched that when we do go to Antarctica, people take such measures about trying to protect the environment and ensuring that tourists are not trampling upon that very fragile place. And I think, you know, two of the great changes in travel that I've witnessed in my lifetime are first, the travel's acquired a conscience. People are traveling more and more to give something as well as to get something and traveling with much more environmental consciousness than they used to have, which is only a good thing. And also, I think travel's got so much more democratic. So as I talk to you sitting here in Japan, I'd say 20 years ago, most of the foreign visitors would come from Europe and, and the US. Now, such a large percentage come from India, Thailand, Mexico, Brazil, of course, China too. But people 
who didn't have the means or didn't have the freedom to travel 25 years ago. So I'm delighted that travel is sort of available to the whole world now in a way it never was before. Of course, topic A before the pandemic was over tourism. We all thought that would be handled when we came out of the pandemic. It hasn't been. We're still seeing crazy crowds in Barcelona and Venice and Santorini, and I could go on and on. And these countries have not really done a good job in uh, in managing those numbers. Exactly. And uh, yeah, you're talking perfectly to somebody sitting near Kyoto, which saw 89 million visitors uh, in uh, 2019. They say that Kyoto is the most visited city in the world outside of Mecca. And the government is really trying to boost the numbers. And I think a lot of my neighbors were pretty grateful for, for the revenue and for the contact with international visitors. But as you say, many of the streets last month were completely impossible. You couldn't walk across a bridge in central Kyoto. So, so thronged was it. And um, so more and more of my friends here have been saying that Japan and no doubt those other countries that you were mentioning should impose a tax somehow to curtail tourism. But so many countries, I think now, and you know a lot more than I do about this, depend on tourism for their revenue. I don't know if they're ever going to want to contain those numbers. Exactly. What we're dealing with is, is a double-edged sword. My thanks to Pico, to Seth Kugel, and to Peter Canego. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.